feel like I'm apologizing so much, but let's just get to the passage. 1 Samuel chapter 11. As I'm looking around, I realize that most of us, we, we were here, if not all of us, we have been here for the last few weeks, so I think we can uh, do away with the recapping where we are, the context. But just to say this, our sermon last week concluded with that great question. How can this man save us? How can Saul save us? These worthless men rejected, and that's the, the, some of the translations, these rebels, this worthless man, these, these sons of Belial uh, rejected uh, Saul. And they were asking the question, how can this man save us? How can he be the one? And we saw then with something, something of uh, the beauty, uh, how Christ is rejected as well in our own day. All, uh, although the beauty, uh, the contrast was between the beauty, uh, external beauty of Saul and the, the spiritual beauty of Christ. And now we come to chapter 12, uh, chapter 11, that is, and um, we begin with that question. How can this man save us? And uh, that question is answered. There's this first uh, battle, this first uh, facing between the king, God-appointed king, and the enemy of the people of God. And we will see how that battle was won. Today, I, I don't want to, I was saying this to, to Peter uh, in the vestry just before we came, I came up. Uh, today, I don't want so much to do what I've been doing in the last uh, couple of weeks as we consider Saul uh, and consider his shortcomings. Otherwise, all of these chapters up until chapter 16 will be, always, uh, will be always around the same thing, just pointing out his failings, his shortcomings. Today, more than that, I want to consider the spiritual realities that lie hidden in the text. Not so much hidden, but that are there. And to this, I want to remind us all that God's word, although it was written by men, it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we are to expect that there's this cohesiveness in God's word, where not only we see a record of uh, God's providence, but we see also glimmers and, and, and shadows of things to come. I don't think it's that, uh, that is spiritualizing the text. Remember, in my seminary days, we were visited by this visiting preacher, uh, visiting lecturer, a Canadian brother called uh, Craig Carter, and he had uh, this uh, this uh, theory that in the modern day we started reading our Bibles like modernists, even in Reformed conservative circles, we started more and more reading our Bibles as post-enlightenment. Uh, Christians and his book uh, which is marvelous a little bit of a, a, a difficult read but it's a marvelous marvelous book uh, it's reading scripture with a great tradition his whole thesis and he uh, lectured us for a week and I wasn't convinced that initially but by the end I had to uh, give him the credit that he was actually right 
his whole thesis was that we need to start reading scripture as our forefathers read it. That that's not spiritualizing scripture. To see Christ, to see the work of, uh, of God, uh, the spiritual realities throughout the Old Testament is not spiritualizing scripture. It's actually giving credit to God as the author of, of the Bible. It's emphasizing that more, because uh, in modern days we, we give a lot of um, credit to the human author. What did the human author want to say to us in this passage? What was the human author trying to convey here? And that's, that, that is the center and the main idea of the text. What he argues is that no, what, what we need to understand is what is the divine author, the spirit, he's the ultimate author of scripture. So many times that the human author didn't even understand properly what he was writing, but one who knows what he was writing is the divine spirit that was inspiring the human author. So today, that's what we'll try to do. And I think this passage has a lot uh, of this happening. Hope I haven't confused you. That there is in this passage so much about the work of Christ in the New Testament, the work of Christ in the hearts of men. And I want us to see that. So the passage begins. There's this man, this, some translations call him king. We don't know. It, it seems to act like a king, uh, a warlord, a, a chieftain of, of the Ammonites, Nahash. And, he, and God's people are facing persecution, particularly the, in, the, the, the people in Jabeth, Gilead. And they are so overwhelmed by the power of the Ammonites. Remember that Israel at this time had uh, multiple sources of, of oppression. They had the, the Philistines towards the south. They had the, the, the Ammonites towards the east. Uh, and here, the Ammonite king or the Ammonite leader, Nahash, he comes against the tribe or the, or the encampment of Jabeth Gilead, which belonged or was in the area of the tribe of Manasseh. Manasseh. The men of Jabesh Gilead were so overwhelmed that they sue for terms of peace. They sue not so much for terms of peace, terms of surrender. They say, look, there's absolutely no way that we're going to be able to face off against Nahash. So let us surrender ourselves. Let us give ourselves as willing slaves, servants to him, and perhaps he will spare us. They are willing to accept being Nahash's servants. But here we begin to see the maliciousness of Nahash. Verse 2, Nahash, the Ammonite, tells them, okay, I'll accept your surrender on this condition. I will make this covenant with you on this condition. You will allow me to pluck out your right eye. You will allow me to take away your right eye. The significance of this uh, is clear. By taking away the right eye of every military-aged man, and perhaps even the, 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 the children, he would forever be uh, bounding that people to a life of servitude. 
most commentators, they mentioned this, and it is true. Uh, in those days, you would fight with a shield on your left arm, and you would leave your right hand uh, free to yield a sword or a spear or a sling, and you would cover your, your head with, a, with your left arm, with a shield, and you would fight like this. If you take away the right eye, that person is unable to fight. They could still function in society. They could still slowly uh, uh, work a field and provide some, uh, some spoils and income to, to the Ammonites. But clearly, that's the, the viciousness, the maliciousness of, of, the, of Nahash. But one thing I haven't mentioned here is that name, Nahash. Again, spirit is the one, the spirit is the one who inspires scripture and it's God decreeing and controlling everything, even the naming of, uh, of people, even the names that parents give to their children. And there is a immense significance in the name Nahash. The name Nahash comes from the Hebrew Nahash. Nahash means the serpent. So this man named the serpent has come to do war against the people of God and the people of God are overwhelmed and they're about to surrender. I don't need to uh, open this up a lot for us to see the significance, both looking backwards to, to the beginning, to Genesis. Genesis 3.15 speaks of the serpent's head being crushed. And if you're an Israelite, uh, at this time there's this Nahash, and we have a king finally. Genesis 3.15 uh, uh, is a, a prophecy of a coming uh, seed of Adam and Eve um, that will... Uh, take over uh, and subdue the creation as Adam should have? This conflict is alluding to that. Here's the, the setting. A serpent man, a man named serpent, enemy of God, and seeking to overthrow the people of God. And if you think, perhaps you might say, oh, you're, you're over-spiritualizing this. I uh, point you to... Blakey, uh, a commentary, a commentator from the, the 17th century, he says this, if we regard Nahash as a type of another tyrant, as one who rep represents the tyranny of sin, we may derive from his conditions an illustration of the hard terms which sin usually imposes. Nahash wanted to remove the Israelites' right eye Likewise, sin wishes to disarm us and render us unfit to fight in God's causes. How happy will we be to realize, as the men of Jabesh realized in time, that surrender to sin is not uh, a necessity. It's, it isn't going to happen uh, by necessity. We can fight against sin. And it wasn't just Blakey. Some of the Puritan fathers, they, they, they used to point this out. Thomas Watson, he, he, he used the, the heavy terms that Nahash put, the fact that Nahash seeks to pluck the right eye, right eye of, of, of those that will be subject to him. And he pointed out that those that are subject to sin, they too have their right eye plucked out. 
Yes, they still have understanding and wisdom, but it's only in their left eye, the, the, the eye of secular affairs. Their right eye is completely blind, the eye of spiritual affairs. Thomas Manton, another Puritan, he points to this, not so much in, uh, in the sense of total depravity as we know it, but Thomas Manton uses this to point out what, what Satan does when he's fighting against believers, when he's warring against believers by seeking to take away our right eye. He says that's how Satan tries to deface us, to mar our, uh, our faces by plucking our right eye, which is holiness, rendering us unable to fight the battle. You see what Manton does there? Manton is saying that holiness is what we need to fight the battle, being set apart to God. And that Satan, what he most wants to do is to render us unable to fight. And how does he do that? How does Satan pluck our right eye? By causing us to lose our holiness. Again, another one, final one. And I promise I won't have many more quotes. I just want to convince you that this is not me trying to uh, 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 make an allegory off of the text. William Gurnall, the, one, uh, the Puritan that wrote The Christian in Complete Armor, that book that speaks about spiritual warfare. Unsurprisingly, he looks at this passage and he sees this as illustration of those things that we face in our New Testament age. He, al he also uses it as, a, as a, an illustration of how Satan uh, deforms us uh, by causing us to lose our holiness. He says that, that, that the face is not so deformed that has lost its eye as the soul that has lost its holiness and no peace to be expected at Satan's hands except he may deprive us of this. We so often want to have peace with, with, with sin and the world. There is no way when, when we ha that we will have peace with Satan in the world unless we become defaced and marred. That's the point that, uh, that the Puritans make, that some of the older uh, believer saints were making as they preached this passage. And that's what we see, that there is this this ongoing battle. And when they, the, the, the people from Jabesh saw these difficult terms, they refused. They said, hold off for seven days. We, we need to find someone. It might be that we find someone who will come out and save us. Brothers and sisters, that's our situation. That's how we uh, live in this world. We live in a world that is seeking to to, and we fight a, a battle against a, an enemy that is seeking to destroy us, that is seeking to embarrass us, to bring reproach over the people of God. We live in a world that hates us, like Nahash hated God's people. Our Lord Jesus says, do not be surprised if the world hates you. Do not marvel, brothers, if the world hates you. Of course the world will hate the believer because the believer lives or should live in complete opposite antithetical way to the, to the world. Jesus says, John chapter 15, 
It wasn't Jesus, I, I misquoted that. It was John the Apostle speaking in his first letter. Now John chapter 15, this is Jesus speaking. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I no longer call you servants, for the servants do not know what their master does or is doing, but I called you friends. And then Jesus goes on to say, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me first before it has hated, hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you because the love, world loves his own. But because you, you're not of the world, because you are in battle against the world, the world hates you. Because I chose you out of the world, actually. That's how Jesus says. And the, and the reverse side, the flip side of the coin is also true. James, speaking to the, to the believers in his letter, he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity against God? You cannot have it both ways. You cannot have it both ways. And that's the, 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 the situation here. You either become a servant of Nahash, you either become a, a slave to sin, to this tyrant that is sin, you either uh, subject yourself to the kingdom of darkness under the rule of Satan, the serpent, or you belong to God. And the people here, they realize that the terms are too difficult. The terms are too high. They cannot have them. So they send messengers. And that's what we see from verse 4 to verse 11. They send their messengers. The message, message spreads throughout Israel, eventually gets to Gibeah of Saul, and, uh, and they are told the news, and they start weeping. Why? Because uh, Nahash and the Ammonites are just too powerful for them to defeat. By this time, the Israel, uh, in, the, in the history of Israel, they haven't been able to, to uh, unite a, a, a single force against a foe if ever, at least in many decades, in many generations. The last time they were able to unite with one another to fight a common foe, it was a civil fight. It was when the other 11 tribes of Israel came out to fight the tribe of Benjamin. That wasn't the best look in Joshua 19, but we'll come back again to Joshua 19 in a moment. So they are stranded, they are crying. And what happens? Here comes Saul. Saul asks, what, what are they doing? Why are they crying? Someone tells them. And the Spirit of the Lord comes upon them. And here the reality is quite simple. The spiritual reality of this is, 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 is obvious. The people of God are unable to fight their own battles. What can Israel do in their own strength to fight this formidable enemy? The answer is nothing. And again, in the New Testament, I pointed this out last week, but I'll point it again. Jesus, when he says, I am divine, he later goes on to say, because I am divine, without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you're just dead branches. You need to, be, to abide with me. You need to you abide in me. You need to be connected to me in order to do anything. And here we see that starting to play out. The spirit of, the, of God rushes upon Saul. He is troubled. And I said I wasn't going to deal with much with this, so I won't. I will just point out that Saul uh, doesn't come uh, across, although this is the high point 
of his life and his kingship. Even here, he clearly uh, has some deficiencies. If you want to know them, it's really easy. Just go read Judges 19 and, and then come back and read this passage. And you'll see that a lot of the things happening here are sending uh, signs of, of uh, bad memories. Uh, this is completely tied to Judges 19. Where that story where, I'll just say it briefly, that story when the, the, the people in Benjamin uh, up north, they were behaving like Sodom and Gomorrah. And a lot of these same places, same uh, situation where they cut up. In, th in this case, it's not a, a concubine, thankfully. It's just a, a, an oxen that is sent all over. But the picture here is quite, uh, it's the same thing as, uh, as if nowadays we spoke about uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima, something happening there. You, you kind of go, nothing good is going to come from the, a lot of parallels, nothing good is coming from this, from this. That's what's kind of happening here. But nonetheless, Saul, spirit rushes upon him. They manage to miraculously muster together a, a single people. It says there that they were of one accord, that they were one man. That's literally what he says, uh, of 300 thousand from from uh, Israel and 30,000 from Judah and uh, Saul forms this new militia this new army and we see again this is spirit working because this would have been impossible unless the spirit was at work bringing this about and then Saul's forces arrive in in, nah uh, in Jabbath uh, near Nahash's camp uh, about the, in the morning and they fight them and they defeat them they have the victory. And the story here is not about, or the, the, the moral of the story is not about how Saul was such a great commander and leader that he managed to defeat Nahash. Saul, although this is the high point of his career and of his life, certainly, because if you have read the rest of Samuel, you realize that it doesn't get much better than this. It's all downhill from here. Although this is the great point, he is not the, the, the one that receives the glory, is he? This is the marvel here, is that the battle was fought in and by the Holy Spirit. This is a story, among many others, of God fighting for his people and granting them the victory. Saul himself, he realizes this. He later says that it wasn't me. It was, it was the, today, uh, salvation came, the Lord visited us with, with accomplished salvation in Israel. And again, that's the message of the New Testament. That's the message of the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's not by force. It's not by might. It's not by power, but by the Spirit of God, Zechariah says. Oh, that we would learn this lesson today. That we would learn it today in our own, in our own personal lives and in the life of the church. It's not about if we can put the... the the, the best programs going and have the, the best strategies in church to, to win over people. It's about the spirit of God. But I'll, I'll leave that to, for in a moment when we consider, uh, when we come to the conclusion. So just quickly before we, we kind of conclude here, because I need to conclude in time. I'll, I'm trying to. Saul, 
is the deliverer. Saul is the king. Saul is the, the one that, that, that is the instrument in God's hands. Uh, the story that begins with a destructive, evil king, serpent, a serpent fighting the people of God, now finishes, ends with uh, a king coming in and liberating, crushing the Nahash's head, crushing the serpent's head. It finishes with, with the people of God rejoicing at the deliverance. But the question is, is this... The, the defeat of the king, uh, the destruction of the kingdom of darkness. Is this the time that, that the enemies of God are done away with? Is, is this the time that the, the, the ultimate serpent gets its head crushed? Is this the anointed one, the Messiah, the king that was to come and deliver his people? And the answer is, no, not really. Not yet. It does point us forward to another king that will come. Another king that will war against the serpent and against the kingdom uh, of, of darkness. Another king that will come and deliver his people. But this time when he comes, he will deliver fully. There is not just a, a victory in the battle. There it was the victory, the ultimate victory, the, the destructive blow that came and destroyed the serpent. That's the, what we see here. All, and we, when we, in our lives, when all may seem that we are struggling and, and the world is oppressing us and, and sin seems to have so much sway in our lives, let us remember that it's not by force, not by might, but by the Spirit of God. As we ourselves fight in war against the tyrant of sin, and as we face the accuser, the serpent, Satan, the devil, let us remember, it's not by force, not by might, but it's by the Spirit of God. Just like the Javesh uh, Gileadites uh, arrived at the conclusion that they needed a Savior, that in and of themselves they would have lost Instead of surrendering to sin, instead of surrendering to Satan, instead of throwing in the towel and saying, it is what it is, I cannot do anything about it, I'm too weak. They realized, well, they did what, what the psalmist says in Psalm 121. They lifted their eyes upon the hills, they looked across the Jordan into the, into the land of Israel, and they wondered, where, does our, well, where will our help come from? And the reality is their help and our help comes from the Lord, the maker of the heavens and earth. I won't be able to deal with, with uh, Saul's uh, humility here. It, again, as I say, this is the highest point of his life. It does come across in a good light. Uh, there's no denying it in some of these things. This is the high point. He is merciful. And again, as you see the mercy of Saul, you should be wondering... Is there not one even more merciful? But, but we'll, we'll, uh, we'll pass on that for the sake of time. And we'll look just at the reaction of God's people, this renewal. After seeing the great hand of God at work, after seeing what the Lord had done, Samuel calls them to assemble and to come together so that there would be a renewal of the kingdom there. And yes, it is, there is a question, 
most commentators, most commentators they, they can't seem to agree here. If what is the renewal of the kingdom? If it's re recrowning, reestablishing Saul, seems to be a, in part that because they, they are making Saul king before the Lord. But there is also a sense that this is much more than just making Saul the king before the Lord, that there is a renewal, not just of accepting Saul as their king, even those that had rejected him prior, but to renew the kingdom. And you wonder, the kingdom of God. That seems to be the case, especially because the place where this takes place, it's in Gilgal. I won't suppose you remember where, 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 Gil, where Gilgal is and the significance of Gilgal, but if you turn to Joshua, as they cross the Jordan, as they come into the land, that, that's in Gilgal, where Joshua tell, uh, makes that covenant and tells them to get 12 stones from the river and place them there as a sign uh, of what the Lord had done, as a, uh, the, nation's co uh, the Lord's covenant with the nation and the nation with the Lord. So there is this sense that the renewal uh, is... Uh, a renewal, a reaffirming of their uh, dependence upon God, their dependence upon God's grace. Brothers and sisters, that's what we need. As we face our battles and as we stray and wander, we need to again and again come and renew our covenant with God. In a sense, I wish that in the Lord's providence this had fallen last week. It would have made so much sense when we were doing the Lord's Supper. But it doesn't matter. But that's what the Lord's Supper is. A renewal of a sort of the covenant. A reminding of the grace uh, that has been bestowed. And a pleading for yet more grace. But it's, that's what we need. So that we may too rejoice greatly. So that we may too uh, sing aloud so that we may too live lives pleasing to God. But the lesson I, I think we should draw from this passage is quite simple, and I've alluded to it. And I'll finish by saying this, is that we need to realize, don't we? We need to realize that we are in spiritual warfare. What do I mean? I think one of the greatest uh, lies, one of the greatest uh, deviations, uh, one of the greatest problems in modern evangelicalism, but I'll, I'll apply it to us more than just broadly to evangelicalism. The main problem uh, within uh, conservative, reformed, Christian, pure, pure theology, uh, whatever you want, however you want to define whatever we uh, are. The main problem is that we lost sight of the fact that we are in a battle, that we are in a war, that what the Jabesh Gileadites were facing is exactly the same thing that we are facing, not against flesh and blood, as Paul says, but against uh, powers, in the uh, spiritual powers. Over the, as Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These spiritual enemies are there, and they're just as grotesque, just as uh, 
ravenous, just as evil, if not more so, than, as Nahash was. We so often forget about this. And I, I have my theories why we've lost track of this. And I'll tell you two, at least of the... One of them is that we live in a, in a secular society and whether we like it or not, secularism sips into our way of thinking and we are just not in tune with spiritual realities. We, we are too rationalistic. We, 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 th we think like the world thinks in these things. We demythologize. We took away the, the spiritual side of scripture or we're taking away the spiritual side of scripture. Another one, perhaps to a large extent as well, is that, um, again, it's a, a, an answer against the, our Pentecostal brethren and even against the, 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 the falsity and the heresy of health, wealth, prosperity, name it and claim it kind of uh, theology. They emphasize so much those things and we want to distance ourselves so much from that kind of theology that we kind of stop dealing with these things because we don't want to be confused with them. But the reality is that scripture speaks of the lion that goes around seeking him, those he, he, could, he can devour. The reality is that the Bible, the New Testament, speaks about battle. Ephesians 6, we'll get there eventually. Ephesians 6 is a whole chapter about this spiritual warfare, how we need to put on the armor of God because we're not in some kind of happy, clappy kind of place. We're, we're in a place where we need to war and fight and, and struggle. The kingdom of God is taken by force. That's what it means when Jesus says that, that there is a war going, that there is a battle. And the reality for us then, if... If this is the case, it should impact the way we act and the decisions we take as a church. So often, the way we think about um, growing and improving and, and, and enlarging, because we all want to see these chairs uh, fuller. I'm, the, I'm one of, uh, that wants to see them get full. But so often, the, how we think of it when we think of how can we accomplish that, it's a very worldly way, isn't it? Let's all be honest here. We're, ju we're just between believers. We cannot put it online. It Let's all be honest here. We're missing the piano. That's really a bad look uh, for visitors. We need to get back the, some kind of good music so we can attract the, the visitors. Oh, this is not really looking good, or this is th that is not really looking good. We, and all our focus is this uh, business plan kind of mentality. What can we do to be more attractive to the world? What can we do? I'm not saying that's how we say it, but sometimes that's how we, how we act. How can I attract better? How can we do this? How, what kind of changes can we make to make this a little bit more? That's business plan kind of mentality. That is marketing. How can we sell our product better? We might not say it like this, but let's all be honest. That's how we think, instinctively at least. And yet the Bible says that's now how it's to be done. We are to see it not as bad business plans, but as battle plans. Because the reality is, what we have to offer, if we don't water it down, no matter how we try to 
flower it around, the world will always reject it because of total depravity, because their right eye has been taken away by Nahash, by sin. They will always reject it. So it doesn't really matter. Unless we start watering down the message, changing the message, we will never be able to attract the world with the message of the gospel using marketing tools. How are we to attract them? By the Spirit of God. If we are to expand, if we are to see these chairs being filled, if we are to see the, this wor the work of this church uh, be restored to what once was, we need to approach evangelism, outreach, uh, we need to approach it with a completely different mindset. I'm not saying we don't do it. Don't take me, this me as a, a scathing rebuke of the pastor from the pulpit. But we need to start thinking more along the lines of the spiritual warfare that we are fighting. We need to start thinking more along the lines of depending. That's where the importance of prayer comes in. Because if, when we realize that nothing that we can do or not do will save a single soul, you can put all the organs and all the instruments and you can change the lights. Nothing will save a soul. Only the Spirit of God. And this is true on an individual level as well. If we are truly in a battle, I hope I've persuaded you at least a little bit that we are truly fighting against demons and devils and the devil, that we are truly in this battle. Don't play around with it. Can you imagine someone in the, uh, in the fields of southeast Ukraine playing around with the enemy playing around with sin playing around fraternizing with the, with the enemy with this vicious enemy and yet here we go, that's how we be, act sometimes we forget that we are in a spiritual battle and we try to fraternize with the world, we play around with it we try to to, to uh, to have a little bit of it. We forget that the, the devil is a prowling, uh, a devil is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. We forget all of those commands in scripture, both Old Testament and New, and New Testament, to be watchful. The, the language of being watchful is the language of a Christian in battle or the language of a soldier in battle. In the watch, make, don't fall asleep. Be watchful. Perhaps someone should write a book like the old Puritan instead of being the, lo the, the rare jewel of Christian contentment. They should write a, a book about the rare quality of Christian watchfulness because we no longer watch. We no longer are aware of these things. Or ultimately, and really quickly, when we find ourselves in the battle, in the heat of the battle, when we find ourselves faced with Nahash, as it says there, as the Javesh Gileadites, when found themselves overwhelmed by the enemy, let us remember this, that there is help, that there is one king whose 
love and desire to come and, and aid us in our fight is much greater than Saul's. And here I'm not criticizing Saul for all the criticism I've put uh, to him. Saul was moved by the despair of his people. I think that's clear in the text. If Saul was in this way moved by the despair of his people, how much more our gentle Savior will be moved by the despair, by our despair. Hasn't he proved enough that is for us? Hasn't he given us enough that for us to know that God is for us? He who did not spare his only son, will he not give you all the help that you need in your time of need? Will he not be that strong fortress for you? Will he not come? Saul was strong. Strong uh, was, was the instrument of God in this situation. There is another man, another uh, that came, that was made king. But this one is strong and mighty. Mighty in battle, as Psalm 24 says. The king of glory. The true king. So, next time you face trials that feel despaired, look to the hills and wait. Because it might not be today. Just like Saul said to the, to the people of Jabesh Gilead, tomorrow by noon. It might not be at this time, but it will come just in time. Like always, God comes through. Might be tomorrow, but God will come. And you will see the salvation of the Lord.